wake up. Uh, by the way, my name is Joe Davis. I'm a lead teaching pastor for here at the Garden. And I just have a little confession to make. You know, there were a couple of games on this week. Um, and they were all blowouts, at least the ones I was interested in, including college and the NFL. And so what I did was this weekend, I watched um, the edited versions of Casino and Goodfellas. And it inspired my sermon. So... I have a couple of, uh, a, there's, there's like a 15 second clip and then 13 seconds of another clip I'm going to show you here. And this is where Ray Liotta goes to meet Karen, if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, meet her parents for the first time, of course. They want her to marry a Jewish man. And so he has to pretend to be Jewish to get credibility with the family. So show these two clips really quick. Karen? Mom? I'd like you to meet my friend Henry Hill. How do you do? Hi, nice to meet you. My daughter says that uh, you're half Jewish. Um, it's just the good half. <laughs> just the good half. Now watch the next one. Just a few seconds of this. Mazel tov. The idea behind it is, in this movie, he's in love with Karen, and he wants to marry her, but he's kind of a gangster. Well, not kind of. He's a gangster, right? He's Italian. He's Catholic. And, you know, the whole, he's the most non-Jewish guy you could possibly meet. And so he has to put on this show to get some Semitic credibility. And so what we're going to be talking about today, in reality, is sovereign swag and Semitic street cred. You know... There is an important aspect of this story we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew does a really good job of giving Jesus Semitic street cred. And that's kind of what we're going to look at. So let me read to you the passage. If you guys remember last week, we talked about the Magi and how they fool King Herod. And he escapes without, they escape without telling King Herod where Jesus was. And this week, we see Herod recognizing that he's been duped. And he decides to take more drastic action. This is probably the part of the Christmas story that nobody ever preaches, right? This is the part of the Christmas story that nobody wants to deal with. It's the slaughter of innocents. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Remember that, it's very important. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and the towns around the region who were two years old or under. <clears throat> according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Another prophecy, remember that. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother 
and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, by the way, that was Herod's son, and he was just as cruel, if not more so, than Herod. In place of, in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And then he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was spoken by the prophets, so that it would be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So we see three prophecies, and we're going to talk about those. Just to give you a little bit of background, Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. It's got a Jewish tone from beginning to end. And the whole reason that Matthew writes the gospel from a very Jewish perspective is so that his audience will recognize and understand, hey, this is the Messiah you have been waiting for. This is the one that fulfills all the prophecies of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Micah, Hosea. The, the phrase fulfilled by the prophets, by the prophecy, is all throughout the book. And it's pretty amazing just how Jewish the Gospel of Matthew is. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, understand something. It wasn't really written to you. I mean, it's part of the Bible, so we read it. But it was not written for Gentiles. It was written for Jewish people to read and understand. <clears throat> he continually references historical events and precise details that are unmistakable prophetic references that any educated Jew would understand. And it's crucial for his readers to know that Jesus was Messiah as promised by all those prophets. And it was important for them to know that Jesus was tied. It was really important to give him street cred, Semitic street cred. It was important for the Jewish readers to know that Jesus was tied to every aspect of Jewish heritage. He was connected with all the beloved prophets and all the lore and all the culture. And in this small passage, we see three unmistakable examples of how Matthew, in literary genius, really ties Jesus to the stories of Moses. He ties him to the stories of Egypt. He ties him to the stories of the Babylonian captivity and in well-known prophecies in Isaiah. Just in a few verses, in 10 verses, he says, look, if there's any doubt that this is the Messiah, boom, 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 and he lays it out like, like an incredible lawyer in a courtroom. So the first reference we want to look at is Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, Matthew does a whole lot in his book to make sure that Jews, listen, when you hear the name Jesus, I want you to think Moses. When you hear Jesus, think Moses. He goes out his way to make sure that the Jewish people understand that there is a definite tie, that Moses was a very clear picture, a very clear foreshadowing of the Messiah to come, who was Jesus. <coughs> Matter of fact, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. And that's the passage that Matthew talks about in verses 13 to 15. But there's some things about this Egypt reference that I want you to learn, okay? First of all, I want you to see that in reality, Jesus was sent to exile in Egypt for his protection. God was protecting the family. Get out of here, he says. Go to Egypt. There's somebody trying to kill the baby. Here's what's interesting. A lot of people don't recognize this about the time that Israel spent in Exodus, in, uh, in Egypt. We talked about this in one of my sermons in the past. 
<coughs> yes, they were in slavery. Yes, it wasn't their own country. But did you know that Israel was protected in Egypt? As a matter of fact, Israel, while they were enslaved, they were thriving in numbers. If you remember, it wasn't like they were totally in whips and chains, because at one point when they were being chased, he said, you know, we'd been better off if we had been living in Egypt, Moses. We had community, we had our homes, we had our families, and now we're going to be wiped out by this army. And so while it was bad in Egypt, in reality, the population, the Jewish population, exploded. They had homes, communities, but the nation multiplied and thrived in huge numbers. As a matter of fact, it was one of the main fears that Pharaoh had. Remember, these Jews are getting too numerous. They're going to overtake us as a country. Do you remember that? And so in reality, while it wasn't a great place, it was in a situation that God used in his sovereign plan, his sovereign swag, if you will, even in the midst of his people being in slavery, he set up a process where they thrived numerically. And in the same way, Jesus is protected in Egypt. As Israel grew up as a nation and then came out of Egypt, Jesus goes from infancy to toddlerhood and is protected and then comes out of Egypt. I have called my son out of Egypt. And if you were Jewish, when you heard that phrase, remember, some of the most important Jewish feasts are based upon what happened during Exodus. And so if you were Jewish and you heard Matthew reference that, you're going to have one of two responses. You're going to say, kill Matthew, I don't want to hear it, or whoa, this blows my mind. It's going to be a very emotional, visceral response. It's not just going to be, for us, when you read it, this is so it can be filled by the prophet. I'll call my son out of Egypt. Oh, yeah, great. To us, it's like a passing comment. To a Jew, it's not a passing comment. It's a very emotional one. But here's something else that's very interesting that I, I picked up in this, right? God's provision, the Magi's gift. Now, when the Jews were in Egypt, there was provision for them. The Jews were protected in Egypt, and they were provided. They had a place to stay, all that kind of stuff. I read this, and I kind of liked it. The connection is, and I'm, I forgot who I, I should have wrote this, written this down, but I'm making sure you guys know I didn't come up with it myself, so I'm not plagiarizing, right? Because I know you guys go home and check and make sure. Every Sunday. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a great sermon, Pastor Joe. Can I have your notes? No, you can't have my notes. You're going to come. All right. The connection that is the gifts of the Magi that they gave the young parents of Jesus were perhaps the finances they used to make this expensive journey out of the country. They, the gold, the myrrh, you know, the frankincense and all that stuff, very expensive gifts. And the, the commentary that I read makes the connection that there is a provision from the Magi for, you know, because they weren't rich people, right? And there's a situation where God says, okay, take your family and move to Egypt, move set up a new house you're going to be there for a while they had to have some money so i can see how god through this connection between pharaoh and egypt you can see the connections that a jewish person would see yes it was bad but god provided and then the magi provided this gift and it kind of financed what i believe and i did some other research i really do believe it probably financed their trip 
to Egypt. So that's the first reference that Matthew makes for Jewish readers. Hey, remember Egypt? Remember the Exodus? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Boom. Semitic street cred. There's a second reference, which is the Babylonian captivity in verses 2, verses 6, uh, 2, 16 to 18. Let me read to you Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Remember when I was reading the passage, he said this is so it could be fulfilled by the prophet. Rachel was lamenting and weeping over the loss of her children. Let me explain that connection. The Babylonian captivity is another very big part in Jewish lore. It's a very emotional story, right? And here's what happens, basically. By quoting Jeremiah, what Matthew does is he makes a connection between the story of the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile, with the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is himself now about to become an exile, a refugee far from his home, and then he references what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., at this point, what happens is Israel is conquered, their temple is destroyed, their land is ravaged, and the population is carried off into exile right at this spot. And Jeremiah the prophet was there at that deportation. He saw it happening. And in poetic style, he lamented that Rachel, who is the symbolic mother of the nation of Israel, was weeping for her children as they were carried off into exile, being removed from their land of promise. And it's a pretty amazing emotional connection that Matthew makes. He says, listen, I want you to understand, yes, there's a connection to, to Egypt, but then also there's a connection to this Babylonian captivity. But you know what? It's not enough there. He also goes on with more literary genius to make another connection to Pharaoh and the Exodus. <clears throat> Do you remember in Exodus, one of the things that Pharaoh did? You know the tie to Moses, all the Israelite babies being killed at birth? Remember that? So here's the tie, right? There's the presence of an angry ruler. You've got Pharaoh, you've got Herod. You've got the slaughter of innocent children. Remember, that's when Moses was put in a basket by the, by, by the river, and Pharaoh's daughter found Moses and picked him up. And the reason Moses' mother did that is because Pharaoh wanted to kill all the firstborn because he was afraid about how big the nation of Israel was getting. And then you have this land of Egypt. So you see the connection here? Here's what's happening. Herod says, I'm going to kill all the Jewish babies to make sure I kill this Jesus guy. Pharaoh says, the nation of Israel is getting too much of a threat to my power. I'm going to kill all the Jewish babies. And you see a connection between a slaughter of innocents, and you see the connection between Egypt, and you see the connection between an angry ruler, and in poetic literary genius, Matthew makes another unmistakable tie between Jesus and Moses and the Old Testament, giving Jesus even more Semitic 
street cred. Let me read this passage to you. Tell me if you think this sounds like this story in Matthew. Revelation chapter 12, second half of verse 4 through 6. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. See, it's important for you to understand. When it comes to Pharaoh and it comes to Herod, it was Satan's plan to destroy the babies in both scenarios. It was Satan behind Pharaoh's plan. It was Satan behind Herod's plan. And every Jewish person would know that in reality, while Pharaoh was the bad guy, it was the enemy who was really working this out to destroy them. And in Matthew says, just like it was the enemy's plan back then, it's the enemy's plan now. There's one last reference that I want to get to before we get to the application part. What do we do with this? There's a third reference, and that is that he was despised and rejected. In chapter 2, verse 19 to 23 of the passage I read, he talks about how he said he would be called a Nazarene. There's a passage in Isaiah 53, 3. It says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Herod dies, and Joseph's first thought probably is this. I got people in Bethlehem, the city of David. We're going to go back home. But Herod's son is just as ruthless as his father, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, nah, don't go back to Bethlehem. It's a bad situation. So he takes a detour and he spends in life, his life in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem, which, you know, Jesus, son of God, king of kings, city of David, right? He, he was in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem. So if you think through that, you can begin to see what's happening. It's kind of like this. Nazareth was a very unimportant city. Nothing but a poor reputation among the people of Israel. It's kind of like how we in Sarasota view people living in Bradenton. <laughs> or the people who live in Mayaka. Or worst of all, Northport. I'm just joking, people. Come on. <laughs> but honestly, you know, we, we people who live in Sarasota, you know, one of, the, one of the first things I tell people, you know, is, oh, I'm glad I don't live in Northport. I'm glad I don't live in Bradenton. I'm glad, you know, I don't mind visiting Mayaka, but I don't want to live there, you know? There's no internet. It's just bad. <laughs> but that's kind of what Nazareth was to Jewish people. It was a town like what could possibly come out of that flea-bitten town, Nazareth? And Jesus was from Nazareth. And anybody that was from Nazareth was kind of looked down upon. They were kind of despised, like, please, you're from Nazareth? Give me a break. Jesus was called a Nazarene, and it was a title of not of glory. When you were called a Nazarene, it was a title of contempt. And when Nathaniel was told by his brother Philip that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, 
You know what his response was? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, you got to come and see. Now, this is, it's important for you. And I know some of this was wonky, and I went through, and a lot of this was kind of like, you know, Sunday school type of stuff. And I just gave you a really brief historical arc of what Matthew does in this passage between Moses and Pharaoh and the Exodus and the Babylonian captivity. And then it's about Nazareth being just like Northport. <clears throat> they both start with an N. I think that's designed by God. Um, what Matthew does, though, guys, and this is important. Now try to stay with me. What Matthew does is he masterfully shows how Jesus fulfills major and even obscure Old Testament expectations of who the coming Messiah was. He doesn't fulfill the political expectations of a lot of Jewish people. He doesn't fulfill the military expectations because those aren't biblical. What Matthew does do is say, look, it's very clear. If you look at the prophets, if you look at history, this is the one. Matthew's able to call to mind the Exodus. He calls to mind Pharaoh. He calls to mind the Babylonian exile. And this made the Christmas story much more legitimate in the hearts and minds of those Jews that God was calling, that those Jews that God would enlighten. And the thread is very easy to see for anyone with understanding of Jewish heritage, history, and culture. And this process of explaining the Jewishness and the prophetic credibility by Matthew also serves as an amazing picture, and I love this part, of the process of how God saves Gentiles and Jews alike. This is where the sovereign swag part of the title comes in. The first part was Semitic street cred. And you can see how Matthew does a good job of building Jesus' Semitic street credibility. But then there's the sovereign part of it. When God saves you, I want you to understand something. It's a process of meticulous, obsessive attention to detail. Precise planning. Perfect execution. Complete satisfaction of the standard of flawlessness that is God. That is required to be in his presence. God does not just say, boy, I hope the blood of Jesus worked and throws it out there. No, the blood of Christ and the work of salvation and the work of redemption is pointed, it's directed, it's precise, it's aimed perfectly, and it works every time. It never fails. Because God is not the kind of God that would call someone and then leave the chance that Satan might win. Even in this story, we see examples of the enemy destroying babies and putting people in slavery and in exile and captivity, and every time it works perfectly for God and his chosen. So there's the sovereign swag about it, you know? It's like, yeah, there might be some hardship, but nothing when it comes to salvation, can go wrong. And so what Matthew does is say, look, God is powerful. Remember those stories? Remember the prophets? Look at Jesus. 
And my application for you is this. When you look at that, yes, we're not Jesus, or we're not Jews. We're not Jesus either, but we're not Jews. And we may not understand all the implications of what Matthew says in there because of our background. But you know what we can know? Wow, God is meticulous. God is precise. God is a planner. God does not just take buckshot and throw it up in the air and hope it works. God's plan is boom, 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 fulfilled, done, completed, finished, perfectly satisfactory. So what is the conclusion? What is the application for us? This is a picture of our salvation and how it is brought about. And a couple thoughts for you. The first one is this. God pays a relentless attention to detail, leaving nothing for chance. He crosses every T and he dots every I. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of what? For those of you who know the verse, salvation. And Paul says, I am convinced there's nothing that can stand against you. Not angels, not devils, not powers on earth or heaven or any height or depth or anything. Nothing can keep you. What does Paul say? From the love of God. Why? Because he took care of every possible detail. <clears throat> Look, I can't tell you what God is doing in your particular situation and how he might be calling you to salvation. I don't know what's going on in all your life with all the hardship and the pain. And our family knows hardship and pain too. And I'm not saying that there's never going to be any of that, but I can tell you this. Based upon the word of God, that he loves his chosen. He's committed to a perfect plan and he will stop at nothing, big or small, to make sure that you come to rest safely in the cradle of God's sovereign grace. That makes sense? That's sovereign swag, people. I mean, Satan can kill tens of thousands of babies and God's plan is so perfectly laid out, he can't derail it. I love the fact that when God called me, he left nothing to chance. Because I can promise you, if he left it to chance, I would screw it up. I would. He says, no. I'm saving you. I did a lot of work to make sure Jesus was exactly who he needed to be. I'm not going to let that work be wasted because of your depravity because of the depravity of the world. I will rest at nothing. I will cross every I. I will dot every T. I will make sure everything needs to be done so that I can bring you safely to rest in the cradle of my sovereign grace. Let's pray.